0: I'm on the telephone with Miles Irving, who everyone in the foraging community should basically know about because he wrote the current modern Bible, although I know he feels slightly embarrassed whenever I say that, called The Forager Handbook, which, from my understanding, supersedes kind of Richard Mabies' Free for Free. Of which, if I'm not incorrect, Miles, Mabies' book was one of the kind of inspirers for you. Is that not right?
1: Well, I think in many ways like the, the way that the he, he kind of writes so beautifully about the, the plants and and the experience of working with plants. I think it's quite
0: inspirational so how did how did the handbook come come into being? Did you just approach a publisher or did they come to you or is it something Well, no, we there? were
1: very fortunate. We had some press coverage in the Observer Food Monthly, and a commissioning editor for well the, the commissioning editor for Hebrew Press. Um, saw the article, had always wanted to commission a, a wild food book, um, and just thought, well, maybe now's the time. And uh, yes, yeah, she got in touch, so it was it was uh, it was it was just an opportunity that was that was given. Um, I didn't have to go looking for it at all, but it was um, it was quite life changing because uh, it meant that I dug a lot deeper into. Um, the plants, than, than I had before, um, because I wanted to just be r- really, really comprehensive. So, whereas at the time, I was working with what I could find in my area, this pushed me out to um, go and search for wild cranberries in Northumbria, um, to try and find... The, the, the one plant I never did find, funnily enough, was uh, was mountain sorrel.
0: Okay.
1: So I, I really made sure when writing the book that I didn't write about anything that I hadn't seen Tasted and uh, and 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 then got some uh, sensible recipes for. But I did compromise with mountain sorrel, knowing that it was so similar to the other sorrels, I kind of felt that was that was acceptable. But I was recently had uh, a visit from friends from uh, Finland who, who gave me lots and lots of mountain sorrel seeds. And whilst I don't normally uh, cultivate anything, I, I'm going to let let my wife cultivate those so that we uh, we, we get to experience that. Um,
0: yeah, because yeah, I still haven't eaten soul, I, I have eaten it in Finland. Yeah, great. So, anyone listening to the call, if you don't know Miles's book, there is a link at the bottom of this podcast, along with a link to his website and to um, a wonderful manifesto that Miles wrote, which the interview is going to be based around because it covers a number of salient questions that have kind of been raised in the in the media at the moment. And there seems to be a bit of a kind of debate. Um, and the manifesto is called "Born to Be Wild," a foraging manifesto. Miles, in it, the, one of the very first things you you talk about is wild and wilderness as being deeply evocative. Yet most people, the kind of cultural perception is that wild and wilderness excludes humans.
1: Yeah. Well, did you know that's actually a very um, a, a, a originally very racist thing? I've only I've only recently discovered just just how. Uh, rooted in uh, a kind of racist um, colonial mindset, that is. It turns out that the origins of the modern conservation movement are in places like Africa and uh, North America, where these great big national parks were were declared uh, by people um, such as John Muir in in America. Yeah. Um, and um, it was based on on a, on a total fiction of a pristine wilderness uninterfered with by human hand. What they actually did was a kind of uh, ethnic cleansing there because they gradually drove all the indigenous uh, North American people off the park. Um, I'm talking, um, I'm not even sure if I'm going to pronounce this right because I've only seen it written down, but I think it's Yosemite National Park um, in California. And um, there were situations where a photographer would be taking a picture of this so-called pristine wilderness unshaped by human hand. Actually, it was an actively managed landscape that North American uh, indigenous people had, had been using fire and all sorts of other techniques to manage and shape over thousands of years. But John Muir's photographer would be out there trying to picture it for their promotional material and fundraising material, um, and he'd have to wait for the uh, indigenous people to get out of shot because they were there working on the land, you know. Wow. Uh, so it, it really is, really is quite dreadful. Um, and of course, this fiction, this fantasy, is based on um, a perception of human presence on Earth, uh, which is, which is, um, well, in some sense, is true, but it's a half truth. So modern humanity, in the way that we um, uh, interact with the biosphere, is clearly pathological, because our, 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 our common theme or, or common mode uh, is is sole is dominance Yeah. and we in terms of how we farm and, and, uh, and so on we, we, are, we are making sure that just one thing is going to grow on a piece of land and with modern industrial farming we actually can kill the bacteria in the soil and the fungi in the soil we certainly put a lot of pressure on the, on the other wildlife there, we eradicate other plants, insects and so on um, and this is part of the whole um, modern paradigm. Well, that kind of human is, is um, pretty damaging to wildlife, the biosphere, habitats, however we want to look at it. However, what is forgotten where people um, adopt that mindset and suddenly say, we want to just carve off people, pieces of the natural world and get the humans out. Yeah. What is forgotten is that another kind of human a pre-agricultural human, uh, or non-agricultural, I should say, um, because there are still non-agricultural human societies now on Earth. Well, you see, they work just like any other species, integrated with the biosphere, integrated with the ecosystem of which they form a part. And the really interesting thought, which which is gradually formulated in my mind, as I've read sort of ecology and, and heard people talk about how ecosystems work this idea of a keystone species comes up again and again and for example yellowstone national park reintroducing wolves which you consider the keystone species means that you know the uh, grazing animals are kept moving they don't graze things too heavily it's quite subtle and sophisticated what happens but that basically caused the whole ecosystem to thrive and the definition of a keystone species is one that has a, a disproportionately large effect on the overall functioning of an ecosystem. Right. Well, you see, it's clear to me that for good or bad, that's what we are. This modern situation, we've been a, a, a very destructive keystone species, but, but the sense is usually a positive one, so but, but perhaps, perhaps that's not a valid u- use of the term. But looking at indigenous cultures, for example, the 50,000-year-old culture in um, hunter-gatherer culture in Australia, where an entire continent was actively managed by a culture which was um, Pretty unified through uh, um, a sort of common uh, musical language of songlines, they they coordinated the active management of that entire continent. There's virtually no part of that continent that wasn't actively managed by that culture, and the end result was increased uh, biodiversity and increased biomass. So there was actually more camel oak, uh, not camel, um, There was more kangaroo meat hopping around because of indigenous land management. There are more of certain wild roots, certain wild leaves because of what they did. To me, that's a keystone species. They have a disproportionate effect on the overall functioning of the ecosystem, and it is a highly beneficial effect. So that's why I'm so opposed to this idea of, um, of wilderness, and that's why I see the role of uh, human beings getting actively involved, gathering, harvesting, Yeah. Um, is, is is such a a positive thing, um, and I don't think I need to defend it. Um, it's it's more that I, I want to argue the case for why it's 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 it's, um, it's really necessary.
0: Yeah, I mean that that brings up. I mean, I you know I travel over to Asia and I've been in Africa and I'm popping over to India next year, and and one of the things that I'm I'm very conscious of is the fact that. You know, we need to be including and listening to the indigenous cultures because like you say, they have managed forests and yeah. Survival international recently, or maybe in the last couple of years, brought out a paper called um, parks without people or yeah. parks need people. Exactly. Which it's is the same here, thing I'm talking about, yeah. thing, isn't it? But rather than and actually my, the way that I said is rather than, than us coming as kind of westerners with you know, our kind of funky education and PhDs, that actually if you go into these cultures and you speak to them, they actually have a huge amount to teach us. And that's often... Absolutely. Forgotten. It's a two-way
1: reciprocity that needs to happen. Well, it's, it's more that it needs to be... There's been so much of that. Uh, you have our knowledge, our culture, our medicine, etc. is a serious need now for the tide to
0: turn and we just sit at their feet and shut up. Um, you mentioned in the manifesto as seeing wild plants possibly is going to be an integral part of the
1: future of biodiversity on the planet. Yeah, I mean I suppose it's good it's good at this point the reference to the convention on biodiversity because um, you know that was a that was a point at which thinking about conservation versus development versus you know how how do we get the stuff that we need as as a society or civilization you know, this conflict of interests um, that is seen to, to to occur. A new paradigm was introduced through that Rio summit and and, and through the Convention on Biodiversity and, and other um, decisions that were made at that time. And this term, sustainable development, was coined. Now, the thing is, yeah. words get bandied around and, yeah. and they, they sound like, you know, just junk phrases after a while because... They're overused or misused or or used in a meaningless way. Um, But the fact is, the word sustainable essentially means that this is something we can carry on doing. We're doing it now and we can carry on doing it um, indefinitely because it's it's a good way to do it. And this is an idea that resolves the conflict. Obviously, we have to find a practical way that, that... that, that, that makes it happen, but the idea that on the one hand we've got to conserve stuff, and on the other hand we've got to carry on getting what we need, what that ends up with is we've carved off bits that no one can use, whilst we just carry on as usual with the rest of it, saying, "Well, oh well, nothing we can do about it. We are going to destroy all the biodiversity on the housing estate, or in this industrial area, or in this farming area. But as long as we've carved off, you know, Yellowstone National Park or whatever, or Dungeon SSSI." That's all right, then, because, you know, we're preserving biodiversity. Well, this idea of sustainable development is saying, look, what if we look at the totality of human activity, everything we have to do to get the stuff we need, and look at how that could actually be woven in with uh, um, biodiversity and, and the biosphere? So where the Convention on Biodiversity comes in is, they, so well, look, instead of just trying to put everything in a museum, First of all, we all agree we want to conserve species from going extinct. Yeah. But secondly, we are going to develop sustainable uses for those species. And that is really radical, that, that, that a convention on biodiversity should start talking about using stuff. And the third thing is even more radical because it says, and we, we uh, are pursuing the equitable sharing of benefits. Yes. With the people who have the traditional knowledge of those plants or, or whatever they are and... and of the, um, the land on which, which they grow. So all of a sudden you have this idea that by using things you're going to conserve them. Now I have to say the Convention on Biodiversity has largely not been implemented with regard to that aspect. The, 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 the current thinking on on sustainable use seems to be more along the lines of. Look, at people must use it, you know, let's make sure they're not destroying it. But I think that is a reversal of the original sense, and it is certainly against the sense of, of uh, sustainable development. It's the idea that we can develop human culture that actually secures the future of plants. And if you, if you look at the uses of plants within culture, securing the future of plants, and if you look at um, Aboriginal culture in Australia, but the fact that I, so the person that has, for example, the emu dreaming, is going to going to guard that species with their life. Yeah, but on the other hand, that emu is integral to and uh, uh, has lots of uses within within the culture. So there's there's a, there's there's a there's a there's a twofold aspect because it's part of their uh, use. They um, they have you know they eat the eggs, the meat, they use the feathers, all these different things. But then there's a sacredness that comes in their culture that, that defends and protects and ensures the future of it. And I think that's a model without, without necessarily going back to a sort of animistic perspective that, that, that makes them sacred in the sense that those cultures did. I'm not necessarily advocating that. But I am saying that as we enshrine the value of things within our culture, then we are going to fight to defend it. That's, that's really the
0: point I'm making. I mean, it, brings up, it does bring up the question, and you do, you do tackle it, pretty much right at the beginning of your manifesto about because you supply restaurants and teach and write and all that kind of thing and a number of people myself included up until relatively recently were were kind of like afraid of commercial foraging as possibly stripping land and we've got these problems now with the media of, of like people saying oh we need to be stopping people foraging, say in Epping Forest, whether it's mushrooms and maybe it would move into plants. You yourself yeah. have this problem um, with natural England putting stop orders on you. And and you you, you mention at the beginning of the manifesto, people often ask me whether large-scale use of wild plants is sustainable. And you say that that's the wrong starting point. Well,
1: yeah, it's the wrong starting point, as I said, because the the, the, the current... Economic system that we have is clearly destroying biodiversity. It's destroying habitats. It's creating climate change and all these kind of things. So the, the right question is, you know, is is what we do now sustainable? And if not, and it's clear it's not, yeah. what are the alternatives? So we have to start looking and pushing in other directions. So the use of wild plants. First and foremost, you are using a resource for which there's been absolutely zero inputs. So you're taking something that the land is producing on its own. And my good friend John Wright always says, every every little gram of wild food that you take, that's at least one gram of wild food that does of cultivated food that, that doesn't have to have um, all of all of the resource that goes into it, including habitat loss, yeah. to produce it. So that's the first point. But then the the, the second thing. Is it, is, it, um, is it possible to do that without, without causing harm? The obvious thing for me where our predominant method of harvesting is simply cutting leaves and stems is, is of course it is. Yeah. Because everybody knows that if you cut your lawn, it grows back. Everybody knows that if you prune a tree, it stimulates um, growth or, or any other plant. Now, I don't rule out there being a situation in which some plants... Um, react badly to repeated harvesting. And you can find examples of that in, in just a basic wildflower book. They'll, they'll say that some, uh, um, some plants don't tolerate animals grazing them because uh, it will stop them coming to flower if, if they're repeatedly grazed. So something like Oxide daisy, if, if you don't leave it alone at a certain point, it will fail the flower. Now, it's a perennial, so it's taken an awfully long time for this effect to happen. Yeah. But we're aware of that. So we, we, we harvest that plant up to a point we will take some of the flowers there's a lot of flower that remains and put seed down at the end of the season but those are the exceptions most plants are not that sensitive to grazing and they will tolerate much um, more drastic treatment than we're likely to give them because grazing animals will eat a plant right down to the ground yeah yeah. and if they stay in the area they'll they'll uh, eat it down again So that's the issue with leaves and stems. If you're talking about flowers and seeds and roots, it is slightly different. We don't do that much work with roots, but we are careful when it comes to flowers and seeds that we're allowing enough to get back into the the seed bank to to replenish. But even there, it has to be borne in mind the, the extravagance and sheer abundance of what is produced by wild plants. They have evolved not just alongside grazing animals, but by seed leading alongside sea leading species. So yeah. they produce far more seed than are necessary for, for precisely that reason. So the thing is, where you've got where you've got examples that have arisen of, of unsustainable harvesting, these tend to be in in one of two different situations. One is you've got just people that have gone after money with medicinal plants. They've gone after money, and that's a key point. Yeah. The whole foraging movement in this country, I do not believe, is, is primarily motivated by financial gain. Yeah. The business that I run, we make a very small profit, we draw a small salary, and, you know, if it was about money, I would have gone and done something else <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and I... All the people I know that work in, in, in this area, they're doing it because they started out with, with the joy of their own personal experience of gathering plants. One thing led to another, and they ended up teaching or, or selling stuff. But it's a way to be on the lands. It's a way to do this stuff and, and, and manage to make a living, which is a very wonderful thing. But the, the, the point is that what's at the heart of it is the complete opposite of a kind of mentality or outlook that would, that would uh, suffer... You know, harm and damage to be done. People would be mortified. And i quote a case on the on the on my website of uh, a friend of mine who over-harvested um, uh, wild garlic fruits yeah. from a site. He did it for several years, and he just noticed that the wild garlic was drastically depleted. And he suddenly put one two and two together. Yeah. You know, the, it, this because I think he assumed that the the plant reproduces much by bulbs as it did by seeds. Yeah. But what he discovered was that the seeds were absolutely essential to keep the population going. So, um, but then he shared that news with me. I put it on my website, and that's the way we, you know, we disseminate that information. But look, it's a learning curve. The point being that this guy responded really quickly yes. to what he observed. No lasting harm was done. There was a slight depletion of that population. The, the area where he did that is now recovering back to, to how it was. But guess what? Because he had that experience, I mean, it it's perhaps should have been obvious, somebody might say, but nevertheless, that information is now being disseminated and other people won't that, make that mistake. But the point is, would somebody make that mistake and go, oh, I don't care. I'll go somewhere else and get some garlic. Nobody that I know would. Yeah. Everybody would be thinking, oh, man, I'm gutted. You know, we've we've, we've done some harm there. What can we do? You know, that would be the immediate response. Now, elsewhere in the world, you've got people that have got into, like, medicinal plants because there's a high premium on them, selfish point of view, Um, and there have been instances. Um, I think, I can't remember if it was you, somebody was telling me about it, they they had a specific area where where that had happened.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that might have been me because one of my
0: my concerns when I was travelling... Yeah was seeing Devil's Claw, which is one of the actually it's one of the it's an interesting point actually, Martin. I don't know it'd be interesting to get your take on it. Is that Devil's Claw is a is a very much in demand medicinal plant um, yeah. um, and gathered in Namibia, I think. And so it's being stripped and and one of my former friends was um was actually writing the manual to Teach the local folk, indigenous people, if you want to call them that, certainly the local folk, to harvest sustainably because poor people think short term. And we have to put this in context compared to our Western lifestyles that when I'm talking poor, I'm talking you might not eat
1: tomorrow. Yeah, but when you're talking that kind of poor, Robin, you're also talking something else, you talking uh, dispossessed. Yeah, absolutely. Because that kind of poor didn't exist until the kind of disruptions that have happened yeah. as a result of colonisation and so on. Yeah. So the same people pre-colonisation would not have been unsustainably harvesting devil's core. No, they wouldn't. No.
0: And actually, that, I don't think their, their intention is, necessarily, is is that kind of selfish thing. It's actually, well, if I gather this plant, then I can sell it and I can get some money and I can feed my family. Because yeah. the way that they're, they're kind of being, being taught to, to harvest is that if you, if you leave that amount this year you'll feed your family one meal a day if you leave that amount the next year you'll feed them two meals a day and then the next year it'll be three meals a day so they they get it on like a real basic survival you know your kids aren't going to die basically um but actually what the point i wanted to ask you is that the interesting thing with devil's claw from my understanding is that um is that actually if you try and grow it as a monoculture crop or you try and Bring it into the agricultural system, it loses its medicinal properties. Fascinating. That's yeah. really that's really
1: that was I found like wow.
0: But can you see how that would be that,
1: would be that would be such a powerful thing for the, the, the protection of habitats. Say that again. All of a how that would be such a powerful thing for the protection of habitats, because if if you need wild land to get devil's claw that works, yeah. there's another reason to not develop that land. And that's what we're looking at, like the, the global potential for, for the the full, and this is why we want to push the foraging thing as, as far as it will go. We don't want to just say, oh, let's just take a couple of leaves. If it's possible to harvest a greater, a, a greater amount of volume from a plant without doing any harm, we think that's what should happen. We're kind of the opposite way around, so let's just, let's just be um, taking as least as you can. Yeah. Because we're bearing in mind, if that wild landscape is a productive landscape, it will stay a wild landscape. So the more productive it is, the better. Obviously, considerations have to be made to, to, um, to other species, if there's anything depending on it. But look, where we've been picking sea kale down at Dungeness, yeah. the only thing that depends on that um, sea kale, other than us, are the blinging snails. Right, like, and and believe me, we leave enough sea cow for the snails because we're only after the 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 leaves that are pretty uh, pristine and not the biggest leaves. So what? Leaves.
0: So what's Natural England's beef with you because they've put this stop order on you regarding the sea cow you just mentioned? So what's their...
1: I what's can't their really way? get to the bottom of it other than the fact that it is just it goes against the grain so much of their institutional culture which is founded on this um, fortress conservation model. Right. There's no rational reason. I mean, they've come up with all sorts of really, really silly stuff. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. They've said that there are lichens on that beach which we're going to trample on and, and get rid of. I mean, that's just, that's just not true. Yeah. And they know it's not true. The species of lichen they're referring to doesn't grow anywhere near sea cow. It's a species of, of uh, much more established... Um, shingle interestingly established shingle where plants aren't growing but, but nevertheless much further in not on the outer ridges where the sea cow is yeah the next thing they said is that because we take the leaves away they won't rock down in the ground and won't and won't produce uh, you know organic material in the, in the in the shingle yeah which to me that's bizarre We leave the biggest leaves, they're all rotting down. I mean, in any way, half the leaves blow away. That's just a really clutching at straws kind of argument. And then thirdly, the seeds that are blown along the beach won't get caught underneath the sea cow. The only reason that would be of any significance is if it was in any way possible for a seed that's just got trapped under the leaves to germinate and grow. Nothing germinates and grows under great, big, heavy-duty, thick, cabbage-like leaves of sea cow. Not even sea cow seeds themselves are going to germinate under those conditions. So, I mean, they're just really, really silly arguments. Is the best they've been able to come up with. Oh, and the other thing they say is that we're going to stop the um, the uh, succession of plants on the shingle. Right. So, in other words, and they even it's go to far to say, because we've change, walked up and down the it? shingle, uh, or people have, that there are plants not growing there that would be growing there. But when you actually look at the list of plants that they, they, said, they have suggested would be growing there, it's a list of plants that, that couldn't grow there. Right. So they mentioned things like Curled Dock. The particular shingle – sorry, this is getting a bit technical. Feel free to edit it out. But the, the particular, the particular um, kind of shingle that you've got down at Dungeon is one that doesn't have this really fine material between the stones. Yeah. Well, Curled Dock depends on that fine material. It's called fine fraction, um, organic fine fraction. Some plants need uh, a mineral fine fraction, but, but there's very, very little fine fraction between the stones at Dungeness. So the only plant that could be there is, um, is a plant called uh, woody nightshade. Well, woody nightshade is there. But it's, just, it's just not very abundant. But, but the other three plants that I mentioned just couldn't be there because it's the wrong kind of shingle. And yet, and yet their strongest thing that they're trying to say is that we are preventing the succession of other plants on that habitat, therefore we're, we're destroying the habitat. But it's complete nonsense. Nothing grows on the uh, front part of Dungeness for, for miles. Nothing else grows but sea cow. That's interesting
0: it, it, that you mentioned the succession thing, because I was reading a new book that's come out this year, and I don't know if you read it, called um, The New Wild. All right. No, I don't think I have. And in it, I mean, it, he talks about invasive species and the benefits of them, rather than the kind of this hysteria that that's going doing the rounds. But he also challenges the belief or the theory of succession. Fascinating. By making quotes on new islands that have developed, and we again, it's one of these kind of, it, I mean, it was, it, it, anyone who's listening. Go and read the book because it radically reframes our view of how ecosystems work. And this is a guy who was actually, although the book is like focuses a lot on, on invasive species, he was a guy who wrote, who was very, very anti-invasive species and spent most of his life writing about why we needed to stop them and get rid of them. This new one, he's completely changed his viewpoint. That's really interesting worth checking out, especially when it comes to using that word succession, so it's, I don't know, I mean it seems like we're moving in, we're having almost a complete, well you mentioned it, like a paradigm shift in
1: how we are I think we really need a paradigm it. shift, and the point, the really interesting thing about that Natural England case is that Natural England, as the statutory body for, for um, protecting the environment um, and, and biodiversity, is, is their, their main function is to, is to um, uphold our obligations under international law, yeah. which includes the Convention on Biodiversity, you see. So it's, it's really interesting because... And, 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 the, and the whole sort of designation of SSSIs now is based around uh, the notion of um, ecosystems and ecosystem services. The Convention on Biodiversity is absolutely integral to that. So, you see, they are actually obliged under international law, to be promoting the sustainable use of plants, right? Whereas this move they've made against us to stop us from touching the sea cow, yeah, even though there's no there's no um, there's no evidence of harm whatsoever, is actually going against our international obligations to promote the use of plants in a way that that, that is part of our efforts to conserve biodiversity. So, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. But, but you know, we, what we're trying to do is support that paradigm shift. It's kind of negative to be up against someone saying, you stop doing that, you shouldn't do that. But we're really trying to walk kind of ahead of that and say, look, I know you see it that way because you're thinking about it this way, but here's another way to think. We're really sure that this is, this is the way forward. We need to re-engage with the biosphere. So we need plants back in commerce, back in culture. Because you see, the thing is, in the old times, the whole tribe would be out there and they'd get on the case and, and use that local resource. I'd really like to see it get back to that. But by picking things for commercial use, we're, we're doing the work of the tribe. But I can really foresee a situation where, where my business would be obsolete. I don't know how far f- forward it's going to be. But, you know, if everybody is reconnected to the landscape in the way that we're envisaging, there'd be no place for somebody coming in and, and commercially harvesting the whole lot and turning it into a product or selling it to a restaurant. I quite accept that, that that's not going to be something that, 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 that continues forever. But in the meantime, we, we are playing the role of being that part of the, the local human presence which makes full use of that resource. And in doing that, we get to be the ones that redevelop that knowledge of how does this plant respond to collection, first of all. But second of all, so we want to get back to the kind of knowledge that indigenous people have and and in many places still have, which is how do you manage the landscape to actually increase the amount of wild food that's available? Now that's a whole area of thought that I've only just realized There's there's people working on it and and writing books and and publishing stuff. Yeah. As well as people still practicing it in various parts of the world that they haven't lost their traditional knowledge. It's a thing called ethnoecology. I didn't even know that existed. But I've recently tapped into... There's a lot of ethnos, aren't there? There's a lot of ethnos, yeah. But but, but ethnobotany, you could be forgiven for thinking that that's people wandering around grabbing plants and finding uses for them. But it's just as if, you know, they're passive. They just gather, you know? Whereas this idea of ethnoecology brings a very different idea in in there. It says, well, these people are are almost more active than farmers. They're certainly more switched on to the complexities of of the environment and they're influencing the environment in much more complex ways in order to promote greater abundance of of wild plants. Now that's the thing that we feel like we're just on the threshold of. We think, okay, we've, we've got the hang of most of these plants, how to harvest them, when to harvest them, and we're pretty sure, okay, we know we're not having an adverse effect. We've been doing this for 10 years. We're still getting the same kind of yields and, and so on. But but now we're, we're starting to think, okay, we, we need to get more subtle about this. Are there different ways we could do it that, that that will have different effects on the plant? Are there other things we could do, just small things that would mean that this plant grew more? The one thing we have done over the years is to grab seed and chuck it around.
0: Yeah. So I
1: mean, that's wild nice. cabbage, we always, we always grab the wild cabbage and just... Just chuck the seed around. Yeah. When we're harvesting crow garlic, we, we we'll take some of the bulbils. Then I'll keep a whole load more bulbils, and I'm wandering around the site and 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 scattering them. So we make sure we're we're serving the plant as much as, as, as we're taking it because we're taking that seed too. We don't harvest the uh, wild well, cabbage seeds, so we just we just scatter them. So I mean, we we've had little little bits that we've done like that, but that's that's the threshold we're on now because we we we, we want to get back to that. Um, much more profound level of interaction with the the landscape. But the point is, Robin, if there's not large-scale commercial harvesting, where is the drive for that? We're not going to get that understanding. We're not going to get that knowledge of how could there be more of this or more of that, or how could an individual tree perhaps yield more. We're not even sure how to frame the questions at the moment. I'm busy studying what North American indigenous people did, I've spent some time looking at the uh, the Australian example. But that's what we feel the, the project has to be for the future. Um, and, and the point is, unless it's large-scale harvesting, it's not going to answer those questions. And, and we feel that the future has to be that we understand how to make wild land more productive uh, so that everything benefits. It's,
0: I mean, it's interesting times because I was recently up north teaching in, it was one of the giveaways that, I don't blab about normally um, on my site or anywhere. I just privately do them. And I was teaching one of the most disadvantaged communities in in Britain, I would imagine, where 14% of people own own cars. There's no local shops, so they have to get on a bus to get get to a supermarket. 40% because they're so poor. 40% of their debt of their weekly food budget was spent on just transport to Mm. get to the supermarket food parcels are just commonplace. government's basically Mm. given up on them um, and they've had to pull together now they're part of a mining community so they still have that kind of thing of uh, I was amazed because it was like well how 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 come it works here you know we have all this talk about transition town and reskilling and resilience in local communities but these people are doing it I mean really seriously doing it out of necessity, not out of some kind of, oh, I've got a comfortable lifestyle. Let's let's be a little bit alternative. Yeah. Um, and when I started, you know, I taught them foraging, and they were just. I mean, the emails I was getting, the posts I was getting of of them actually gathering wild food, creating um, nutritious, healthy meals for themselves, mm. because we're talking communities where in the food parcels. There's a, there's a little booklet that goes out as how to spread a potato, a jacket potato over two days meals. I mean, you know, most people listening to this would think that that was some third world country. But yeah. this is happening now in Britain. And, you know, and how that they could, they're working together where they're not actually stripping the whole lot. One person isn't just going in and cleaning it up. They're working together in a way where... Everyone is is cared for and looked after with food. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that one. Actually, I just wanted to put.
1: Well, that no, I uh, think the important I thing to, to to see with that though is that they're parallel threads, and they're both really really important. Because what the um, the the commercial foraging thing has done with um, high end restaurants using these plants is it's is it's pulled something out of total obscurity, or, or worse, you know, it's seen as as, as almost rubbish. Yeah. a lot of these plants grown in lawns or, or you know in, in, uh, in among the flowers getting yanked out and thrown away and really cursed as, as weeds and all of a sudden you've got some top chef that's willing to pay 50 pounds a kilo for this or that and he's using it to uh, to, to be the sort of crowning glory of a of a, of a dish of exquisite quality and, yeah. and really refined technique that's made it with the finest ingredients all of a sudden the value on that thing shifts exponentially. Uh, and so you see that the, 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 uh, the, the rest of the culture suddenly sees that as something that is really good and really valuable. And I think and because it's it, so... It's tr- got to come from both
0: ends, basically. Yeah. It's,
1: it's all working together.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It's all, it's all spokes on the same wheel. You know, w- we were talking yesterday and talking about, you know, I was saying about how plants and and food you know that's my way into the natural world and then i mentioned stars and mountains or whatever people want to get into and and you made the point very valid of that actually even though wild food is being served on the michelin star tables around the world that because it's food because it's something we take into ourselves it changes our our body it changes our chemistry and one I, of the I things think, I found I think it, on, on, yeah, sorry, on, on my walks is that, you know, I get people who come on my walks because they've had food. And I used to be not, not against, I'm not against, i work with some really top chefs, but there it, 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 it always seemed a little bit of a kind of out of context thing of having wild food served, say, in the middle of London on a restaurant. Is that really connecting them to back to land? Well, no, it isn't in the sense that they're not actually going out and getting their hands dirty. But what it does is a ca- it, it's a catalyst, not obviously for everybody, some people it's just a tick list, but for actually a, a very large number of people, it awakes something in them of like, you mean this is from the hedgerow and this is how it's been beautifully presented? I want to know more. Well, it
1: means next time they look at a hedgerow, they might not recognise that plant, but they'll be aware there's something in that hedgerow I could eat. Yeah. It, it makes them look at it differently. And I think I think the other thing is that the other thing that's going on there, which I've already alluded to, is this general heightening of, of cultural value. And I think that is really important because it affects people at every level. It, it means that people are conscious of something, they're aware of it, but in being aware of it, they think this is something really good, this is something really special. And if it wasn't for the top chefs, that wouldn't be happening. Yeah. At least not in the same way. Now, there's all sorts of ways things can come in, you know, and people that are into health food or raw food or vegans that want to eat more plants. All of those people can, can contribute to that general process of, look, we're becoming more aware of what, what's there. Dandelions are really good for this reason or that reason, and they're thinking more from a health point of view. But it's really important that the chefs are doing it from a, look, this is really good food from, from, a, from a, a another cultural angle, and they're celebrating flavor and deliciousness and, and texture and, and, and just the whole extravagance of of a wonderful meal. And I think if if we if we if we see what's happening there this is on a completely different level to the merely um, imaginative engagement that people have with with something like bird watching or or stargazing. And I'm a keen bird myself so I'm not I'm not rubbishing that, but I'm saying when you when you actually engage with something with food, it's, it's, yes, you've taken it into your body. So it's becoming part of the molecules of you. So that is, that is a really strong thing that's happening. But prior to that, it's, 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 you're taking it into your experience. It's not just your eyes that are seeing it, as you would with bird watching. You're tasting it. You're smelling it. You're sensing the texture in your mouth. And if you, if you take it a bit further and you do start gathering some plants, the memories that you have of going out and gathering the place, the, yeah. the sensations, all of that. Again, that goes much deeper yeah. than the memories that you would have of, of, of spotting a rare finch or something. So I just think in terms of a means of engagement, of, of getting people back in to the world around them, there's, there's a lot of threads to this. Um, and and uh, it's, 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 it's stronger than some of the other ways that people are choosing to do that. Yeah, I think,
0: I think it's... Um especially when you mentioned that thing about memories. I mean, I remember talking to Frank Cook, who was my plant mentor and how, who you know, came to visit you when he was over from America. Mm. And I remember him talking to me and I said, you know something, something's really weird happening to me, Frank, is that the more I'm foraging, the more that I'm eating wild edible plants, I'm suddenly having memories that I'd completely forgotten about as a kid growing up in the countryside. Yeah. coming, literally flooding back into my consciousness that I hadn't had completely forgotten about. There is this, it's almost, a, a I don't know whether it's a primal connection or there is something very, um, very powerful and very deep, not to sound too woo-woo, about picking, crushing, smelling, nibbling and then finally yeah. eating a wild plant. That just yeah. makes certainly me, and I know from talking to many other people, makes us feel so integrated and yeah. integral
1: within our environment exactly we 're back in it and, and it 's in us
0: yeah so, so you mentioned at the towards the end of your your manifesto this this um, concept of terroir which comes from from the French and could you just kind of explain a little bit about what terroir is? But also you mentioned um, it, how, how terroir may point the way for us to find our 21st century ecological niche as a species.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's, 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 it's kind of that uh, keystone species thing that I've mentioned, and it's kind of that uh, eco-ecology thing. But it's, it's, it's basically the concept of terroir is that you have um, food from a particular place which expresses the landscape but it also expresses the culture. So it's um, it's a way of um, people being embedded in the landscape because they're embracing stuff that grows there and, and, and then they have different ways of using it which is peculiar to their, their own local traditions and so on. Where where you get into wild food, I think the terroir thing becomes much stronger because unlike grapes or some kind of cheese, are around domesticated species that come from somewhere else. A wild food terroir is is much more exciting because it's like uh, I mean there's there's a there's a root to the word wild. I think it's a, it's a German word. I'm not sure, but it basically means will. It's got its own will, and these plants are growing where they have chosen to grow. It's not that we have manipulated the landscape and the seeds to get them to grow and and then prop them up with all sorts of artificial inputs. You know, these plants are growing there because that's a place that's good for them and, and they've almost chosen to grow there. So the presence of a wild plant reflects that landscape much more purely than something that we've had to manipulate in order to get it to be there. So when we start basing culture around that... We are having a culture that is shaped by that yeah. peculiar ecological condition, or geological condition, or climatic condition, or the combination of the of the rest of them. Then, of course, you come on to all the ideas of, of um, how you're going to work to not only maintain that resource, but uh, encourage it. You know, where where you're actually managing land to produce more wild food.
0: What about the law? I mean, is that causing a
1: problem? I mean, we're finding... Well, you see, the thing is, the has... thing, I, don't, I don't think the law is an issue at all when it comes to foraging. I think the, the, the frustration that conservationists have at the moment is they really would like to stop people from touching things. Yeah. Because it doesn't fit their model. You know, they want they want people to, to just enjoy this pristine wilderness unshaped by human hands, which, of course, is a total fantasy. All of these wild landscapes, apart from salt marshes, and maybe, um, well, the coastal ones are more so are, are are less less modified. But even even some of the coastal ones have been traditionally grazed and so on. Yeah. But anyway, that's probably not the point. the The, the point is there's there's this view of um, the need to maintain wildness by not having people do anything, and it, it's based on a complete misconception of of how we've lived on this planet for an awfully long time. Because of that perception, conservationists want people just not not to forage. Um, and they especially don't want people to forage commercially and, 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 and take any, any quantity of stuff. But they are without any kind of legal basis to, to start preventing people from doing it. So there's an awful lot of bluster going on at the moment. And it's almost like there's an emotional blackmail going on yeah. where they create... A sense of fervor and because that some harm is being done and because they're professional conservationists everybody takes it seriously if they say harm is being done it must be being done when there's actually when it comes to the the uh, the controversy over mushrooms there's plenty of peer-reviewed journal articles yeah which show that mushroom foraging does no harm whatsoever and then there's this, the evidence of entire countries like poland and italy where people forage pretty much every mushroom that comes up as soon as it comes up have done for hundreds of years, and the mushroom population is is unimpaired. You have this bluster that goes on, which is basically emotional blackmail to to whoever, whether they be judges or or, or the general public or journalists you know that's like well something's got to be done because there's all this harm, yeah yeah, I mean it's really damaging, isn't it, and everybody goes, "Well, if you say so, you're the conservationist." Yeah. This is really, yeah. it's really dodgy because the, the 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 evidence is in totally the opposite direction.
0: Really cool talking to you, Miles. Thanks for coming on. And for anyone who wants to know more about Miles's work and his organisation, he runs a website called Forager.org.uk. So, speak to you later, Miles. Yeah, great. Thanks, Robin. Right.